Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. Well, we have a guest today that you will definitely recognize because he's been on the show before, but also is one of the leading philosophers, apologists, scientists today, and really could be considered one of the founding thinkers of the intelligent design movement, has written some New York Times best-selling books such as Darwin's Doubt, but has a new book out called Return of the God Hypothesis that we're going to jump into. So, Dr. Stephen Meyer, thanks for joining us. It's awfully nice to be talking to you and talking to you again, Sean. Thank you. Oh, my my pleasure. Well, your book, again, Return of the God Hypothesis, is fantastic. I do this little Instagram post where I do a book of the week where I pick a book that shifted my thinking. And your book was featured on this because I think it's just so timely and insightful. And I want as many of our listeners to pick it up. So let's jump in with a title. You call it Return of the God Hypothesis. What is God returning from? Right. Well... God never went anywhere, but uh, <laughs> our thinking about God has changed uh, in response to our uh, in response to scientific evidence and our approach to science. Uh, and you're right; the title of the book invites uh, the telling of a story. And the story is that uh, in the period of the scientific revolution, um, from roughly 1500 to 1750, modern science, in its um, contemporary form where the systematic methods of of investigating nature were developed, science began in a decidedly Judeo-Christian context, or milieu, as the scholars call it. And it did so not incidentally, but instead for specifically Judeo-Christian and indeed biblical reasons. The early founders of modern science believed, first of all, that nature was intelligible, that it could be understood, that it had secrets to reveal. There was a hidden order or design built into nature that they could understand because, and they believed this because they, th- they, they believed that nature was created by a rational creator, namely the God of the Bible, who had made our minds in his image in order that we might understand the rationality and the order and the design that he had built into nature. So there was a principle of correspondence between what uh, Sir John Polkinghorne, the great Cambridge physicist who only recently passed away, uh, described as the order within nature and the order or the order within our minds and the order with, without, the, the reason within and the reason without. There was a, a match between the two. <clears throat> and there were many other presuppositions that the Judeo-Christian view of the world brought to the understanding of, of the natural world that inspired science. Uh, the, the early founders thought that nature had a lawful order to it, that that lawful order was contingent on the will of the creator because it was a creation. And yes, there was an order built into nature, but it could have been otherwise. There were many different types of order that God could have built into nature. Uh, the laws of nature had a precise mathematical form, but they could have had other mathematical forms. So to, to, to discover how God actually made things, one needed to go and look and see and to examine things carefully and empirically and systematically and experimentally. Um, <clears throat> and this was a departure from the Greek approach, which was uh, somewhat concerned to, to with a, a certain level of empiricism to look at things. But the Greeks believed that nature was governed by an, in, an internal logic that was... Um, uh, self-evident to any logical person. So you could essentially sit down and do armchair philosophizing and figure out how nature must work. So that's why we had for, for so long the idea that orbits were circular. 
the circles were after all perfect motions. And so that was the most logical way for the solar system to be organized and therefore therefore that's the way it must be. Robert Boyle came along and said, no, it isn't the job of the natural philosophers to find out what God must have done, but rather to go and see what he actually did do. Mm. So this new approach to science, which emphasized the doctrine of creation and that the creation was contingent on the will of the creator, inspired an empirical approach. So that was the that was the period of the scientific revolution. Most historians of science okay. now see these Christian ideas as crucial to, to science getting going. That was lost in the late 19th century by uh, with the rise of thinkers like Darwin, Marx, later Fr- Freud, uh, Thomas Huxley, and others who inaugurated a, uh, a kind of science, uh, a materialistic approach to science that we've inherited to this day. But the argument of the book is that there are three big discoveries that have been made that challenge this materialistic understanding and which are, again, pointing to the reality of God uh, where where what I call the God hypothesis can function not only as a set of presuppositions that make science possible, but actually as an explanatory uh, a hypothesis that makes sense of of what we're seeing in the natural world. One of the things that I love about the way that you write is that you tell stories, and you do that in all of your books. But I also know in this book, it's a reflection of your own story. What's the story behind your interest in the question of God's existence? Well, th- yeah, thank you very much. I had a kind of long, tortuous uh, conversion. I tended to overthink everything, and uh, so. Some, somewhere between my senior year in high school and my, the first year out of college, I became a Christian. I'm not sure exactly when to pinpoint that. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of ups and downs and backs and forths and so forth. Um, but uh, the, the, the considerations that moved me intellectually to feel confidence about um, the existence of God initially were philosophical. They were um, uh, the argument from epistemological necessity made a tremendous amount of sen- sense to me. The crucial question in the philosophy uh, of knowledge today is the reliability of the human mind. And it seemed that theism grounded a confidence in the reliability of the mind better than any other competing worldview. Um, and on that basis, I was a fairly convinced theist and and also a Christian uh, coming out of college. In the mid uh, in my mid-20s, I attended a conference in Dallas, where I was working, I was working as a, a, a geophysicist. I was doing digital signal processing, an early form of information uh, technology. And the conference convened uh, scientists to discuss the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the origin and nature of human consciousness. It was exactly the sort of it was exactly the set of questions that along interested me. Those that were at the intersection between science and philosophy, and the the, the attendees were world class scientists and world-class philosophers on these topics. Some were theists, some were materialists or atheists or agnostics. And the panels were divided between those who were theistic friendly and those who were, who were more operating out of a scientific materialist worldview. And I was stunned to find uh, that the theists seemed to have the intellectual initiative in all three of these conversations. Wow. And one of the, the, the opening conversation about the origin of the universe featured, among others, Alan Sandage, who was the great observational uh, astronomer from Caltech who had been Edwin Hubble's uh, graduate assistant and who had gone on to continue Hubble's work verifying the expansion of the universe uh, as a result of the redshift evidence from the, the galaxies in all different quadrants of the night sky. And 
uh, Sanders shocked everyone, most people there at least, when he rose to the podium and sat with the theists in this uh, conversation back and forth and gave an ex- extraordinary talk about how the evidence from observational cosmology confirmed the evidence, uh, confirmed the idea that the universe had a beginning and that this was not evidence that could be explained within the framework of scientific materialism or within within physics uh, as we know it, as he put it. It was evidence for what he called a supernatural event. It was a creation event. And he then recounted how this, uh, this um, discovery and the discovery of what we call the fine-tuning and some other considerations from biology about design had moved him to a point of recognizing that his materialistic worldview was inadequate and also to the point where he didn't want to consider anything else, at at which point he said he began to do business with God because he realized that despite his vaunted uh, objectivity, uh, he wasn't being very objective about this, that there there was something in him that did not want there to be evidence of um, a designing mind or creator behind the universe. And eventually he, he realized that the problem was internal and, and he had a conversion. And he recounted this whole, this whole story. I heard this. And then in the subsequent panel, there was a discussion about the origin of life, which was equally interesting to me. And there, there was another intellectual conversion announced. And that was the conversion of Dean Kenyon, who had been a leading yeah. chemical evolutionary theorist. And he announced that he no longer accepted his own most popular theory of the chemical evolutionary origin of life, and that instead he thought that the whole question of natural theology needed to be reopened because of what the biologists were discovering at the foundation of life about the information-bearing properties of cells, that the information he thought indicated the activity of a prior intelligence. Well, I was seized with these these presentations, ended up meeting a man named Charles Thaxton, who was on the Origin of Life panel. He and I began to talk. Uh, A year later, I was off to grad school. Um, and dove in first on the whole question of the origin of life. And I spent uh, from basically 1986 to 2009 when I published Signature in the Cell, uh, focused and thinking about that uh, question and whether or not it was possible to make a scientifically based argument for intelligent design, which I uh, which I uh, did, or at least in my own estimation did, in, uh, in developing the case for intelligent design in Signature in the Cell, but in, but after signature in the cell, I, I, I or signature in the cell concluded that a designing intelligence of some kind was necessary to explain the origin of the digital information that's stored in DNA and RNA, the molecules that are at the foundation of life. Um, I didn't attempt to to identify the designer. This new book uh, brings in e- other evidence to do that and to answer the question: Who is the designing intelligence responsible for life, and what can science tell us about that? Well, I love that you get into this data. I would, I would say your last chapter in the book, to me, is worth the price of the whole book. You have this line, you said, I remember thinking at 14, my life was over. And I'm reading that going, that means since 14, you have been thinking about these questions and wrestling with them. And this book really reflects decades of research. Uh, it's, it's clear that you thought about it as a scientist, but you know the implications that fall from it. So with that said, let's jump into the first piece of evidence that you cite, which is the origin of the universe. What key discoveries led scientists to conclude that the universe is not eternal? And what follows from those discoveries for the source of the origin of the universe? Right. Well, that's excellent. Uh, an excellent question. The, the, the story of the discovery of the beginning of the universe is absolutely fascinating. It starts in 
roughly the 1920s. There's some indications before that in the teens, but uh, the astronomers begin to discover that the universe, or sorry, that the uh, the light coming from distant galaxies is being stretched out. It's look, it looks redder than it should look if the objects uh, in the night sky are stationary in relation to us. This is the well-known phenomenon known as red shift. It's a form of the Doppler shift where as an object moves away, the wavelengths of light are being stretched. They become longer. Longer wavelengths correspond to redder light. If you shine light through a prism, it separates into red to violet. The, the red corresponds to the longer wavelengths. So this was, uh, this was first uh, discovered by a little-known American astronomer, astronomer named Vesto Slipher. He discovered it in the teens, but it was coming from what were then called nebula. And people didn't know at the time that nebula were distant galaxies. Hubble established that the nebula were galaxies and then confirmed that the light coming from those galaxies was redshifted and therefore that the galaxies were moving away from us. And uh, that suggested an expanding universe in the forward direction of time. At, uh, where, where the universe would be expanding something like a balloon. He also discovered that the further away the galaxies were, the faster they were receding. And that suggested a, a spherically symmetric expansion as, you know, I just did a, a talk on this and blew up a balloon to illustrate the, the idea with the galaxies drawn on the surface of the balloon. Uh, but the, the key thing, the, the key insight comes when you wind the clock backwards and all that galactic material becomes more and more compressed, closer together, more dense. Eventually, it all congeals or would have been compressed into one uh, one dense point, marking uh, the, the furthest extent to which you could back extrapolate the universe. In other words, the creation event, the beginning of the universe and the beginning of the expansion. Um, so that was one line of evidence. A parallel uh, development in theoretical physics seemed to confirm the same conclusion. This was Einstein's general theory of relativity, which he published in 1915. And the theory of relativity, the, the, it, was a, it was a new theory, this general theory was a new theory of gravity. And it suggested that gravity was produced as massive bodies actually curved the, the fabric of space around them, creating preferred lines of trajectory that caused other massive bodies passing by them to, to be pulled towards them. Um, one implication of this theory of general relativity is that the universe must be dynamic and expanding because if gravity were the only force in the universe, then everything should have pulled together into one giant black hole. But we don't live in a black hole universe. We live in a universe with empty space between the galaxies, between the massive bodies that are in the universe. And so that implied that there must be a contrary force, an anti-gravity force pushing outward which implied a dynamic universe. Einstein didn't like this implication of his theory very much. And so what he did is he arbitrarily chose a, a value for what is called now, this outward pushing force is called the cosmological constant. He chose an arbitrary value for that. He essentially fine-tuned the system, in his mind at least, so that the outward pushing force of the cosmological constant and the inward pulling force of gravitation were precisely balanced so that he could depict the universe as a steady state, a static universe that was neither expanding nor contracting, in which case then he didn't have the uncomfortable question of what had 
caused the beginning of the universe. There was no beginning again. It was a, he could again portray the universe as eternal and self-existent as many physicists and even philosophers going back to the Greeks had, had thought the universe was, was best depicted. Um, two problems arose with that. One, um, uh, subsequent physicists, including the great uh, Belgian priest physicist, uh, Georges Lemaitre, showed that the uh, even with the finely tuned value for the cosmological constant that he had chosen, the universe would be unstable. It would either contract or, or expand. Even slight perturbations in matter would would uh, throw the whole thing off. And so it, it wasn't possible to fine tune it in the way that Einstein attempted. Gotcha. But then, as I like to say in the book, uh, the heavens talked back. And that was the, <laughs> the, the, this was the discovery of Hubble, mm. that the universe was in fact expanding. In a famous taxi cab ride in 1927, uh, Lamatra told Einstein about the redshift evidence. Uh, Eddington invited him to Cambridge two years later. Eddington told Einstein about the redshift evidence. And then finally, Einstein went out to see Hubble in 1931 at the uh, 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 Mount Wilson Observatory. There's some famous newsreel footage of Einstein walking in, looking through the telescope. Two weeks later, he gives an interview to the New York Times and says that uh, that Hubble and Hummison, his colleague, had proven that the universe was expanding. Wow. It, it was dynamic. It wasn't static. He mm. was wrong. He later said that his his uh, gerrymandering of the cosmological constant was the greatest mistake, the greatest blunder of my scientific career. That, so there's two lines of evidence. Yeah. There were many more that came in in the, the, the cosmic background radiation, the discovery of a, the, the, the anomalies that people were looking for in the co a cosmic background radiation with the COBE satellite. So there have been a lot of observational uh, evidences from astronomy that have confirmed the, the, the superiority of the Big Bang model with its affirmation of a beginning over, conf, uh, over um, competing models, such as the steady state and the oscillating universe. So uh, the idea of the beginning, I argue in the book, there are ways to try to get around that. There's a new model of cosmology called quantum cosmology. Yeah. I show in the book that quantum cosmology has its own hidden theistic implications. But um, I, I point out, the claim I make in the book is as best we can tell from both observational astronomy and theoretical physics, the universe had a beginning. How would you compare the acceptance of the Big Bang model that the universe had a beginning with the acceptance of biological evolution among biologists. Is it as widely accepted? Is it more accepted? How would you compare those two? Um, well, it's really hard to say right now precisely because the contemporary um, neo-Darwinian theory of evolution is now so widely doubted hmm. among leading evolutionary biologists, despite the almost uniform affirmation of the theory in science textbooks, public proclamations of public spokespersons for science, statements issued from the AAAS, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, or from the National Science, uh, National Academy of Sciences. So official, uh, official science-dom has proclaimed uh, Neo-Darwinism to be uh, completely uh, without, to totally solid, don't look behind the curtain, there's no problem here. But if you get into the peer-reviewed literature in evolutionary biology, there is a tremendous amount of doubt, especially about the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism. I uh, attended a conference in 2016 at the uh, Royal Society uh, in London, and the Royal Society being you know, the, the oldest and most august scientific body in the world, it was called, the conference was called by leading evolutionary biologists who are unhappy with neo-Darwinism, recognize 
its explanatory limitations and are looking for who are and these scientists are looking for new new models huh. and new mechanisms of evolution that would have the kind of creative power necessary to produce the major innovations in the history of life. The mutation selection mechanism does a nice job of explaining adaptation and uh, minor variation. It does not do a good job of explaining the origin of major innovation in the history of life. Events like the Cambrian explosion or the mammalian radiation or the angiosperm big bloom of, of uh, flowering plants or many other such events in the history of life. So, um, so it's a little hard to, to make that comparison. Sure, I would say that fair. the acceptance of uh, some form of Big Bang cosmology is pretty wide and pervasive among physicists, astrophysicists, okay. cosmologists, and astronomers. There's an inflationary model of, of the, uh, the inflationary Big Bang, and that's that's quite popular. Uh, it has some problems, but um, you know it also presupposes a beginning. As do oddly these quantum cosmological models that were developed to try to circumvent the problem of the cosmological singularity. These models also end up presupposing a singularity, a singular beginning to the universe gotcha. in the technical papers. That's great. Now, what, one of the things we hear frequently is that Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest physicists, scientists over the past half century, has shown that the universe could maybe even have a beginning but not need a creator. What's one or two key ways you think that his math doesn't add up? Uh, that's a big part of the new book, as you know. Uh, or you wouldn't have asked such an astute question. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, Hawking, Hawking was is such an interesting figure. Uh, in 1966, in his PhD thesis, he proved, made an initial proof of what's called the singularity theorem. It's brilliant. Br it was a brilliant idea. He was doing black hole physics. He knew that about the expanding universe. He knew that if you wound the clock ba backwards, the mass of the universe would have gotten more and more densely concentrated, causing a more tightly curved, uh, the, the, causing the space of the universe to become more and more tightly curved. If you went back far enough, he argued, eventually you would reach a limiting case where the curvature of the universe would go to an infinite. Infinite curvature corresponds to zero spatial volume. At that point, uh, that would mark the beginning of the universe itself. It also is profoundly anti-materialistic implication because if the curvature of space goes to an infinite, that corresponds to zero spatial volume. And you can't put anything in no space. So this, you know, this is a picture mm. of the universe arising. Um, it's almost creatio ex nihilo, the creation of the universe out of nothing physical. Hawking is profoundly, uh, over time, uneasy with his own result. He does some more work on this in the 60s with Roger Penrose, one of his PhD supervisors, and then with George Ellis. And they end up uh, providing more rigorous proofs of the singularity at the beginning of the universe, a temporal singularity and a, a spatial singularity, showing that there was a beginning to time and space, if the theory of general relativity is true. Uh, but there, there has been doubt about whether you could back extrapolate um, using general relativity all the way to the beginning, because we, wouldn't, we don't know how gravitation would uh, work in the very small smidgen of time and space right after the beginning when the universe would have been small enough to be affected by quantum fluctuations and be subject uh, to quantum mechanical uh, effects. The universe, the universe is always uh, subject to quantum mechanical effects, but in, when the universe is small enough, it's, um, th those effects become relevant to, to the, its depiction. Sure. And so what Hawking ended up developing was an alternative model of, of 
uh, cosmology known as quantum cosmology, where he uh, depicted the universe in its earliest stages as a quantum system. And uh, um, that it's a little it's a little difficult to explain quickly, but the quantum uh, in quantum mechanics that's a, that's the physics of the very small, and the physics of the very small is also the physics of the very weird, where particles connect like waves and waves connect like particles, and um, in an ordinary quantum mechanical system, as you're trying to track the movement of a, of a particle until there's an observation, the particle has a finite probability of being in a whole bunch of different places at the same time. And until there's an observation, uh, you don't get what's called the collapse of the wave function. So there's a, a function that describes the, all the different places the particle could be and the probabilities. And there's a way of, of um, uh, and, and the function allows you to calculate the probabilities associated with those different locations. What Hawking and his colleague James Hartle did was say, well, we could, we could calculate a, a wave function for the entire universe, describing not all the places the particle could be, but all the different types of universes that might emerge out of the singularity. So all, all the different universes with different gravitational fields. Um, so oddly, despite in, in his popular work, he made a lot out of uh, a particular... Uh, part of his mathematics where when he's doing a mathematical trans transformation, the singular beginning to time um, is is temporarily eliminated. When he's used, he's, he has to do a transformation involving imaginary time and what are called complex numbers. And in that intermediate step in the transformation, uh, the, the, the uh, time, time becomes what they call spatialized. It seems it's, and so there's, there's no temporal, dimension in the, in the mathematics during this intermediate step in the calculation. And in his, in his popular book, he made a big deal out of this saying, well, ah, if there's no time, then there's no, there's no beginning. If there's no beginning, what need then of a creator? But he admits that this use of imaginary time is, is a mathematical, there, there's the, 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 the mathematics of that intermediate stage in his transformation has no physical meaning. This mm. is a calculation device. And yet he drew a major physical and metaphysical implication from that. Well, as we got into the technical papers that, that Hawking was writing, he didn't, did not make that same, uh, he didn't draw that same implication. What wow. he was trying to do was to show that the universal wave function that they were calculating for the entire universe contained a universe that had a gravitational field like ours. That is, it had... Uh, 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 yeah, so it it, it was a, a, a the, the the universal wave function contained a universe like ours with our physics. If it did, he would say that then the laws of quantum gravity, the the the, the quantum physics applied to the beginning and the early universe, explain the origin of our universe. But this is a very strange result because uh, if you think about it uh, philosophically, because what they were actually saying, first of all, they presupposed the singularity in all these calculations. The singularity never went away. There was still a beginning. He was calculating the odds effectively of a universe like ours coming out of a, 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 a cosmological singularity. So there's still a singularity. They don't get rid of it, number one. Number two, okay. before there's matter, space, time, and energy, there is this universal wave function. But the universal wave function is not a thing. It's not matter, space, time, or energy. It's a purely mathematical entity, which describes the different possible universes that might emerge out of a prior mathematical way of depicting reality. And, um, 
And one of the other physicists who's been involved in developing quantum cosmological models named Alexander Vilenkin has reflected on this quite deeply. And he says, well, what are these laws of physics? Before there's matter, space, time, and energy, then what tablet are these laws written on? Um, this would be a purely mathematical reality, the universal wave function. Huh. And and he goes on to say that you know math is a concept. It exists in minds. He says, are we therefore saying that that a mind predates the universe. Wow. Because you see, if matter's coming out of, math is causally inert. It doesn't cause things to happen. That's right. It, it's, it's a concept that we use to describe how matter behaves. Um, so the laws of physics don't, they don't expl- they, they describe how matter and energy within space and time function once they already exist. They don't d- produce matter, space, time, and energy. And so Vilenkin saw that this whole approach of quantum cosmology, well, his, his rhetorical question, which he never answered, implied that this whole approach of quantum cosmological, uh, quantum cosmology actually has a philosophically idealist or theistic implications because it implies the existence of a mind yeah. before the creation of matter, space, time, and energy. And, and Hawking himself tumbled to this in, uh, in his popular book, A Brief History of Time. He said, what puts fire in the equations that gives us a universe to describe. The equations don't give us a universe to describe. Yeah. Something else must do that. So um, I don't think he actually succeeds in providing a materialistic account of the origin of the universe. And if I haven't exhausted your listeners already, there's one more <laughs> angle on this. It's really interesting. The universal wave function is the is the product of it is the result of detailed and very difficult mathematical manipulation or an attempt to solve rather a prior equation. The prior equation is called the Wheeler-DeWitt equation. It's the analog of the famous Schrodinger equation in, uh, in, in ordinary quantum mechanics. But the Wheeler-DeWitt equation is a type of equation known as a functional differential equation that has an infinite number of solutions. So to get a definite solution, a definite universal wave function out of the Wheeler-DeWitt equation, the, the, you have to apply what are called boundary constraints or boundary conditions to the equation. And those uh, in ordinary differential equations or partial differential equations are provided by the physical system you're describing. So if you use a certain sort of math to describe a certain sort of physics, the, fi- the, the physical system will determine, for example, how long, uh, how long a string might be, a vibrating string might be based on where you put the pegs on the guitar. So the, the, the initial and, and boundary conditions are provided by the physical system. There's no physics yet in, when we're talking about the origin of the universe. So where do the boundary constraints come from that allow this big monster equation to be solved? Amazing. They're chosen arbitrarily by the physicists to get a universal <laughs> wave function <laughs> that includes a universe like ours. The mm. whole mathemat- process of mathematical modeling is N-directed. It's teleological. There's an input of information from the physicists to constrain the degrees of mathematical freedom in order to get out a universe like ours. And so what are they actually modeling? I argue in the book they're modeling intelligent design, that you need wow. information that you need information that constrains the degrees of mathematical freedom so you get the, to get the answer you want. And that information is coming from the theoretical physicists modeling in a sense, what Hawking used to talk about is the mind of God. That is super interesting. And when I was reading through your book, some of those insights, I just kind of stopped and was like, oh my goodness, these scientists, great scientists like Hawking and scientists like Einstein are aware that their beliefs have theistic implications. 
and it shapes the way that they do their science and they can't avoid the beginning and information, like you said, which leads to a mind. Uh, this is fascinating. Now you do three. We've just scratched the surface on how the origin of the universe points towards kind of a beginner. The second one is fine tuning. Now we're not going to have time to go into depth on this, but it's basically the idea that the laws of physics and cosmology exist on a very narrow range, which can't be explained by chance. Uh, and it can't be explained by law, points towards a mind. Now, the quick response to this, people often say, is the multiverse. Could you give us kind of your quick response, if yeah, possible? Yeah, right. we went into a bit too much detail <laughs> on cosmology. Oh, that's okay. I, yeah, the, uh, the seal for my father's house, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, the fine-tuning, We, you know, the physicists are telling us we live in a kind of Goldilocks universe where we have these multiple, couple, two, three dozen uh, fine-tuning parameters that are against all odds, and that's an understatement, uh, beautifully tuned to allow for the possibility of life. They fall within very narrow tolerances or very narrow ranges that are uh, correspond to a life-conducing universe, uh, a, life, a life-conducive universe. The common sense interpretation of this, as Fred Hoyle has pointed out, is that a super intellect monkeyed with physics and chemistry to make life possible. Mm. Um, in fact, Hoyle, upon discovering some of these fine-tuning parameters, had a dramatic shift in his worldview from uh, an outspoken atheist to someone who was at least quasi-theistic. He believed that there was some intelligent design behind the universe. Um, the atheistic response or the materialistic response has been the multiverse. The multiverse is the idea that, yes, there are these incredibly uh, small probabilities associated with these many independent factors, making the whole ensemble even more incredibly improbable. But if there are enough other universes out there then some universe with the right combination of fine-tuning parameters would have had to have arisen someplace. Uh, and so, and we, in this universe, just happen to be in that universe. So we're, we, we are impressed gotcha. with the, the improbability, but really it's just an observer selection effect. We don't, we don't know that there are all these other universes out there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so impressed with how improbable the fine-tuning is. Here's the problem with this. One of many, but here's the biggest one. In order to make a multiverse hypothesis work, the universes can't just be out there, causally disconnected from one another. If we just have a bunch of causally disconnected universes, then nothing that happens in another universe has any effect on anything that happens here, including okay. whatever process it was that fixed the fine-tuning parameters. Therefore, to make the multiverse hypothesis work as a, as a kind of explanation based on ch a chance process, the multiverse proponents have to posit universe generating mechanisms. And there are two that have been proposed, one based on string theory and one based on something called inflationary cosmology. And if there are, is a common cause of all the different universes that are being posited by the multiverse, then you, can then you can propose that our universe is, you can depict our universe as a kind of uh, lucky winner of a cosmic lottery, where there is an underlying causal mechanism that's producing all the different universes. So we're all connected by our common causal mechanism, uh, all the different universes are. And that's where the rub comes in. The, the, uh, the universe generating mechanisms that have been proposed, uh, in, order, in order for the universe generating mechanisms that have been proposed to explain the incredible improbability of the fine-tuning parameters and to explain how new universes would arise, even in theory, these universe generating mechanisms themselves have to be incredibly finely tuned. So 
for the for the universe generating mechanisms based mm. on thring, string theory and inflationary cosmology, there has to be prior fine tuning for them to generate a multiplicity of universes. And yet there is no explanation for that prior fine tuning. In other words, these mechanisms invoke prior unexplained fine tuning. And uh, and so the multiverse doesn't ultimate, ultimately explain the fine tuning at all. But instead, we do know of a cause that is sufficient to explain what we call finely tuned systems. Finely tuned systems are, we, we use that term to refer to systems that have a multiplicity of improbable factors or parameters that jointly uh, work together to perform some functional outcome or to exemplify some set of functional requirements. And in our experience, we have lots of examples of finely tuned systems, French recipes, internal combustion engines, finely tuned fr- uh, Swiss watches, and the universe. And uh, all the systems that we know of that where we can trace things back to their source always involve an intelligent cause. So the explanation of the multiverse, I argue, is still best explained, or even if there is a multiverse, intelligent design is still the best explanation for the fine tuning um, in the universe. That theme just runs through your book like a drumbeat, so to speak. Whether it's cosmology, physics, or biology, these naturalistic explanations account for some data, but they can't get rid of the need for a mind and intelligence and information and design in the universe. And it just is so fascinating for me to read this. It's encouraging. But my last question for you is, how has your personal life and faith been affected by studying this scientific data in such depth over the past few decades? Well, I think we all walk around in our daily lives somewhat inured to the uh, extraordinary, as you put it, the specificity that's required for uh, the things that we take for granted from the beautiful patterns, the the orderly concourse of nature in the solar system, if you're watching the movement of the planets night by night, uh, the, the, the intricacies of biological systems, just we have all these flowering plants in bloom right now in Seattle, where I am, uh, in the inner workings of the cell. And there, there, I think there is a, ref, there is a natural tendency in the human mind, uh, to lose our awareness, our, our, first of our, our awe and our awareness of design and our awareness of, of God. Um, and I think there's a, a sort of a natural tendency towards disbelief. And for me, the uh, the study of these um, different evidences and different biological systems, and uh, it realigns my thinking on a day-to-day basis, because even though I have this natural drift towards agnosticism, you know, we're used to seeing everything around us, what's the big deal? Um it it makes it forces me to think about what the best explanation of these realities really are, and so it it has the effect of of realigning my thinking, and I think bringing it into a line with reality, mm. and and that's part of what I hope to convey in the book. Um, the evidence for the existence of God is no further away from us from one than one of those little points in the night sky. Wow, we can't quite see with the blind, with the naked eye, but we now know with the telescope you can see that that's a galaxy, and that galaxy is providing a clue to what's happening in the universe. It is expanding outward from a creation event. And I can go and look at the night sky tonight and identify uh, a point of light that with a better telescope, I could see what was such a galaxy. If I look in the microscope and look into the inner workings of the cell, I see life forms all the time around me. Oh, hum, there's a bunny rabbit passing by. There's, there's a wonderful flowering tree. But uh, 
I now know that the angiosperm big bloom was an extraordinary, extraordinarily dis, discontinuous event in the history of life. It's not explained by Darwinian processes, nor is animal development with all the circuitry that's required to put all the cells in the right place at the right time. So I think when you get into the details of, of biological, astronomical, physical evidences, uh, it, it, it enhances your wonder, but also your awareness of the need for a great mind behind the universe to explain what we're seeing. Steve, your book is just fantastic, and I really hope that our listeners will pick it up. And I I want folks to know this is not written for beginners, but it's also not written just for people with a scientific background. Dr. Meyer tells a story. He gives illustrations. Now, you have to put some effort in to understand it, but to me, the effort is worth it because there were so many eye-opening kind of brain-expanding moments where I paused and I was like, oh, my goodness, this is just so helpful. So, Dr. Meyer, we at Biola, we love you. We're grateful for your ministry. Thanks for writing a great book, uh, The Return of the God Hypothesis, and thanks for taking your time to come on the show. Thank you, and thanks for the, the wonderfully studied and astute questions It made for a really good conversation. <laughs> we'll do it again. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Masters in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.